And now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 8, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, as we just sang in your psalm, you have established your king, you've given him length of days, you have established him over his enemies, his enemies uh, foment and strive against him, but uh, he has subdued them all. And so in reading about this, your king, your servant, David, we see our savior, Jesus, our king, how you have established him and you have fixed his throne and under his feet, you are subduing all of his enemies. And so father, as we participate in this, cause us to rejoice in your king, as you have told us his story through your word and uh, give us submission and appreciation to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, if you've ever been away from home long enough that you start to feel a sense of homesickness, a sense of distance and forlornness about the fact that you are, you are so far away from home, you know what it's like in the midst of that homesickness, in the midst of that sorrow, to get a little taste of home, to, to hear someone talk the way they talk back home, or maybe to hear music that reminds you of home, or the best thing is to get to eat something that's prepared the way they fix it back home. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be close enough, and it can bring back all kinds of warm associations. It's, it's still neat the way that there are local cuisine spread throughout our nation and, and still parts of the world, even though you drive from one uh, interstate uh, you know, exit to the next, and at this exit there's a Home Depot and a Walmart and an Applebee's, and you go down, along, down the road about 20 minutes and there's a Home Depot and a Walmart and an Applebee's. It's just like repeating the same thing over and over. Even in the midst of that, there are still little things that are still unique to various areas of the country. And if you're away from home and you get to taste something like that that reminds you of home, it brings back all kinds of warm associations, and it makes you feel in that moment that you are at home or less near home for just a moment. Uh, for example, one thing that I grew up with was St. Louis style pizza, which is a very thin crust. It's a kind of cheese you can't get anywhere else but St. Louis. It's a spe special mixture of soft cheeses. And, and then they, they cut it in squares. They don't cut it in slices. And the last time I was in St. Louis a couple years ago, we, we ordered some St. Louis style pizza. My friends from around the country said, what is this? I said, it's pizza, man. This is, this is the real deal. And they're like, no, that's not pizza. I don't know what you're talking about. And they tasted it and they didn't like it either. They didn't, they didn't get it. 
A couple weeks ago, Sarah made me some, just as close as she could, and it was, it was so close, and it was so good, and it brought me right back to being a teenager, and all these memories flood back. With just a little crust and cheese and sauce can do that. It's amazing how, how, how it can just transport you there and take you back home. Well, David's kingdom that we're studying about, David's kingdom is just a taste. It's just a whisper. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a reminder and, and a reflection of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, not everything is here. Not everything is realized fully. We don't have Jesus' kingdom in perfection or completion or in full maturity. David's kingdom isn't point for point exactly like Jesus' kingdom, but it is a preliminary and it is a principal form of Jesus' kingdom. It's, it's enough to give you a taste. It's enough to give you a sense that, oh yes, I see what Jesus is doing through what David has done. I see it. These are important patterns here as we read David's story and we, we want to keep coming back to what Jesus is doing and will do through his church as we read about David's kingdom. David keeps his covenant promises as Jesus does. David enlarges his kingdom. He expands its reach and its territory. David increases its glory. David defends his people when they're mocked and abused, as we're about to see in a couple chapters. We won't get there today, but, but we'll see David defend his people. David does good. David rules with justice and equity and righteousness. And when he gets praised, David deflects all the glory to God, just as Jesus is always deflecting all the glory to his father. So, so David does that. David blesses his people and rules over them and defeats and subdues his enemies like Jesus does. And so tasting here in just this one chapter that we're going to read today, we get this taste. Oh yeah, that's what Jesus is like. So in reading these chapters and just reading them straight through it, it may seem to be, well, this is just a dry, dusty historical record of, of wars and exploits of an ancient king. But keep remembering this as we study David, that he is foreshadowing Jesus. If, if all we do is stay focused on, on David himself and the story as it's presented, it gets real easy to be super moralistic about the text and say, well, David did this. Was that right or wrong? Well, it was wrong. Okay, well, then don't do that. Don't do what David did. And then, and then we read further and we say, was David did this. Was it right or wrong? Well, that was right. Okay, well, then do what David did. And, and we turn this simply into a moralistic story. But that's not the only reason. Now, certainly there's some wisdom and there's some good things we can learn, and I don't want to downplay that. But overall, we need to read this as, as David pointing to his greater son, Jesus. David points us to Jesus. And everything that David does, Jesus does in a greater and more glorious way. Let me amend that. Everything that David does right, Jesus does in a more glorious and beautiful way. So last chapter, things slowed way down. We had a lot of, we had a lot of conversation. Yahweh made promises to David. David responds to those promises. Now things pick back up again over the next several chapters, and we get a good deal of drama and excitement. Chapter 8, which we're going to look at today, can be broken down like this. Verses 1 through 6 that we just read. Uh, detail four victories of David over Israel's surrounding enemies. And then we read at the end, Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. Some of your translations, I think the ESV says, or the RSV says, Yahweh gave David the victory wherever he went. Um, at, both of them are adequate, but, but one gives the sense of victory. Wherever David goes, he has the victory. 
So that's the first section, 1 through 6. And then in 7 through 12, we read about the spoils that David collected as he defeats all of these enemies, all of the treasure that he dedicates to the Lord. And in verses 13 through 14, David gets a victory over Edom. And again, we get the phrase, once again, Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. Yahweh gave David the victory wherever he went. And then at the very end, we have uh, verses 15 through 18, a summary statement of all of David's government appointees each of whom had to go through a lengthy and painful and bitter uh, Senate review process to get uh, to the election. No, they, David just appointed them and they were, that was done. And they didn't, they didn't go through that then. So we open with this very tight account of David's military exploits, one right after another, because the Lord just made David a promise. He said, I'm going to make you a great name. And I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel, and I'm going to give them rest from all their enemies. Well, immediately after God promises this to David, David then goes out and, and fulfills the promises that God made him. Remember what I said last week, that when God promises something, it's a call to action. God promises it. Now we pray it out and we act it out so that it comes uh, into uh, reality. So David makes a name for himself by conquering Moab, and Edom. And the Lord is appointing a place for Israel by extending the boundaries of the kingdom. By the end of chapter 8, David has more than doubled the territory that Saul left to him. And before long, before he's finished, the boundaries of David's empire are the same boundaries that God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. That, those are the boundaries of Israel at the end of, of David's uh, work. So the way this chapter is, is organized uh, re reinforces this point of, of God's dominion over the land he's promised to his people. It points this out geographically. David's conquests begin, I'm going to do this from your perspective, it begins with a victory over the Philistines to the west, and then he continues to fight Moab to the east, and then he uh, attacks Hadad-Ezer to the north, and then he finally conquers the Edomites to the south. So that's the way this chapter is, is outlined, west, east, north, south, so that all four points of the compass are included. David is extending his kingdom to all four corners of the earth, just as the extension of Christ's kingdom go to all corners of the earth. There's a word that's repeated in this chapter uh, in, in Hebrew that it doesn't come through in every English translation. And the word is naka, uh, boys, when you're playing swords or guns, little girls too, when you shoot Nerf guns and play swords with your brothers as well, use the word, use this word, naka, which is strike. I smite, smite is a good old word that we don't use nearly enough. I smite you or strike you down, naka. It appears seven times in this chapter. As David strikes down the Philistines, as he strikes down Moab, he strikes Hadadezer, he strikes Damascus, he strikes Edom. Well, he's striking, he's attacking, he's on, on the offense to begin with here. First, he struck the Philistines. This is a big deal because this means we're on offense now. All this time, we've been playing defense with the Philistines, but now David is on offense. Let me read verse 1 again. After this, it came to pass that David attacked, he smote, he struck, he knocked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah 
from the hand of the Philistines. David took Metheg Amma, that's literally the bridle of the mother. And, and so this probably refers to the, the capital city, the queen city in Philistia. If you have a bridle, you can control the whole horse. But it's, it's not a horse that he has a hold of here, it's the mother city. So at the end of 1 Samuel, remember, the Philistines had the people of God dwelling in holes and in caves and in, uh, under rocks in the ground, that that's where they were hiding out. And the Philistines were living in all the cities of Israel. Now things are reversed. David has their capital city by the bridle. He has the queen city, their mother city, and the Philistines are subdued. After this, he strikes Moab. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Um, this raises all kinds of questions. We would expect David to have a friendly relationship with Moab. His great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabitess, right? When things were heating up with Saul, David sent his mother and his father to go live with the Moabites. David talked with the king of Moab personally and said, will you take care of my mom and dad? And his family dwelt there safely when, when Saul was ranting and raving. But something has happened to that relationship in the years since because Moab is no longer friendly and David reduces their fighting force in this dramatic fashion. He, he lines up three lines and two lines he commits to death and one line he spares. Uh, it's very curious. Why he does it this way is a mystery to me and you all are good at thinking through things and spending time reflecting on things. So maybe you've got an answer for me. Uh, maybe you can help me figure that one out. Uh, but I can't, I don't understand it, why he did it this way. Yet, despite the family connection to Moab, Moab is an old enemy. Moab is, a, is an ancient enemy of Israel, and now David subdues them. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. He defeats this king, and uh, he, he destroys or incapacitates or hobbles most of the horses that he captures. A king, a king of Israel is not supposed to multiply horses like the pagan kings. The pagan kings multiply horses and they build chariots and they have these big standing offensive armies of horses and chariots that were incredibly powerful on the ancient battlefield. A herd of horses pulling chariots that have these spiked wheels with archers in the back of the chariot. They could simply mow down foot infantry like grass. I mean, they could simply just absolutely wipe out a, a, a foot infantry. They were terrible in the mountains. In Israel, God put his people on mountains. So Israelites are mountain folk. Uh, so chariots are not good uh, for, for most of Israel's warfare defense within, within their boundaries. And God doesn't prescribe offensive weapons like chariots for his people. So he says, I don't want you multiplying horses because that's going to make you uh, generally an, an offensive people. There, there's lots of instruction in the Bible about having good walls, about having good defensive protection. Even this battle that David fights here 
qualifies as, 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 a defensive, uh, as, a, as a defensive war, as a defensive campaign. David is going to, to recover, it says, recover his own territory. And when he, when he takes some horses, he has a small specialized army for an emergency. You can have a few horses and chariots, but you can't build a big offensive army and go around and make perpetual war to the ends of the earth. So in a national and a political sense, a, a nation under God's rule doesn't act like Alexander the Great. We, we don't act like Napoleon. We don't act like Nazi Germany. We, we don't just keep attacking and attacking and running uh, out to the ends of the earth simply to gather um, land and territory and resources. God gave rules for warfare that limited the scope of warfare in his law. So Christian nations fight primarily defensive warfares, which include defending our friends, which include defending those who, uh, 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 who are being oppressed by tyrants and defending those who are being unjustly treated. But, but in a spiritual sense, in, in our warfare, in, in, in a spiritual sense that has eternal implications, in, in using weapons that work to change the world, well then, well then certainly we're on offense. But when it comes to weapons of flesh and all these horses that David captures, David flees from the temptation to multiply horses and he renders them useless for fighting. It says he hamstrings them. And that probably what that meant is that he cut one of the tendons at the back of the leg, which would render them useless for pulling a chariot. Now, maybe they could pull a wagon or a plow, uh, but they aren't good war horses anymore. And he renders them useless and he just keeps a few uh, in obedience to God's law and not multiplying horses. He just has a small uh, contingent of skilled horsemen. Verse 5, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. This is very similar to the way that the conquest of the land went under Joshua, that we entered the land, God gave us a great miraculous victory over Jericho, and then after that, after Ai, pretty much after this, all of the nations start coming and attacking Israel. It's a defensive campaign. We get a big miraculous victory to start, and then we're playing defense and defending our army against those attacks from around us. Well, God has given David a big miraculous victory over the Philistines, and now as he is protecting his interests around the borders of Israel, subduing these enemies, which have always been a threat to Israel throughout her history, as he uh, gives them a taste of their own medicine. So now they're being stirred up to attack him. And this is now a defensive campaign. When the, when the Syrians of Damascus come to help Hadadezer, David subdues them. He strikes them down and he plunders their riches and dedicates their treasures to the building of the temple. And that's what the next section is about. It's about all of these treasures that he is collecting. Verse 7, David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Beta and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. 
for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to Yahweh, along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants, and Yahweh preserved David wherever he went. So all throughout these exploits, David is collecting these resources from which a beautiful, glorious temple could be built. And this is the theme that I mentioned last week, that after God plunders his enemies, he builds a house. He did it with Egypt. He plunders the Egyptians, and with those treasures, he builds the tabernacle. And now David plunders the nations to build the temple, just as Jesus plunders the kingdoms and the nations and the families of the earth to build his house. You are the plunder. You are the treasure of the nations with which Jesus is building his house. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, you are spiritual stones, uh, you're living stones that is being built into a spiritual house. God is building his temple with this treasure. You're the treasure. You're the, you're the gold and the jewels and the, the, the fine metals and the, and, the, and the good things that he's taking to build his house. Well, David knew that he wasn't going to be the one to build the temple. God told him, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. But rather than pouting, rather than going ahead and doing it anyway, rather than just running off to follow Baal, David gets busy on the next best thing, which is setting his son up with the riches and the resources to build a glorious monumental stone temple. This is wonderful. This is a great lesson. This is one of those areas where, yeah, you really do need to follow David in this obedience. Because some of us, when we don't get what we want, when we don't get the thing that we're pining for and hoping for, the thing that we've set our hearts on, a thing that might be really good. There's nothing wrong with building God a temple. Eventually, God allows Solomon to build him a temple. It may be a very good thing. But when God says, no, you can't have it, and he says no through circumstances. He says no through loss of opportunity. There are lots of ways that God says no, and it's very obvious and evident that God is saying no. When God says no to the thing that we've set our hearts on, it's really easy for us to get bitter and angry and hateful and pout and never recover and just never get over it. Children especially, it's really easy for you to do this as well. When you set your heart on something and you've built it up in your mind as the best thing, young men and women and children, you think this is what we're going to do. And then the answer comes, no, that's, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Then, then often you'll hear, but we are going to do this. And then, and then you drag your feet. You're going to let everybody know how miserable you are that we're doing this and not that. that. That I've been told no over here. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make everybody real miserable that I've gotta do this thing over here and be real hateful and mean-spirited about it. Well, that's not what David does, is it? David gets told no about this very good thing that he set his heart on 
And rather than getting upset and rather than getting real angry, he goes cheerfully to this other thing that God has for him to do, which is to go collect all the spoils and go collect all the riches with which his son is going to build the temple. David's enthusiasm is manifested in his obedience. And that's the way we need to respond too. When God tells us no, when the authorities over us, whether they be bosses or parents or the government or whoever tells us no, clearly no, that's not the way we're going to go. Well, okay, be real cheerful and find the next thing that you're going to do and obey God with. Well, here David is busy. He's active. He's engaged plundering the nations around Israel. It mentions shields of gold in verse 7. Let me stop and think about that for just a minute. A gold shield isn't worth much in battle. First of all, gold is heavy and it's soft. So <laughs> carrying a gold shield into, into battle, I mean, it's going to take two or three blows and, and you're not going to have a shield anymore, right? Why are there shields of gold? Well, golden weapons are more ceremonial than they are practical. And the fact that David is getting the golden weapons and the golden shield shows us just how far into the enemy strongholds he's pressing. David isn't just picking stuff left. Off, uh, he's not picking up stuff left on the battlefield. He's going into the palaces. He's going into the throne rooms. He's going into the inner sanctums of these kingdoms and relieving these enemy nations of all of their wealth. He takes bronze also from the nations, which in particular is going to be used by Solomon to build uh, the bronze sea in the courtyard of the temple. Remember the bronze sea was the water vessel. It was an analog to the, the lever of cleansing in the tabernacle. It's this big basin uh, where uh, they kept water for the purifications and the baptisms and the washings that took place at the temple. And that rested on the backs of 12 bronze oxen, which faced north, south, east, and west. This big bronze sea then uh, is, is a bigger and a more amplified version of that labor of cleansing that's in the tabernacle. So, so it's not just a wash basin, it's a Sea, S-E-A, it's a, it's a sea. And the seas in scripture, in biblical symbolism, the seas are always associated with the Gentile nations. Um, remember in Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly temple, water flows out of the temple to the nations. That means that the purity and the holiness and the salvation and the redemption and the communion and the near bringing that, that, that happens at the temple. All of this salvation and glory and blessing flows out of the temple to water the whole earth. So it all clicks, doesn't it? That the sea that Solomon makes in the courtyard of the temple, the bronze sea was made out of the bronze taken from the nations. And it's um, explicitly in 1 Chronicles 18, when they go to build this, it says, oh yeah, we got that from Hadadezer. Well, where did we conquer Hadadezer? Well, 2 Samuel 8, that's where we got this. That's where we got this bronze to make this sea. The sea was made out of the bronze taken from these nations, and this bronze is glorified, it's elevated, it's sanctified, it's taken from the nations, glorified, and now blesses the nations. It's the water of cleansing for all of the world, for all the nations. Now, uh, we could read all of these stories and we could start to feel real sorry for all these nations and think, man, David, he's just stirring up trouble. He's just such a, he's such a warmonger. But remember, these nations uh, directly situated around Israel, 
they're always a threat to the peace and security of Israel. The primary threat came from the Canaanites who had been allowed to stay camped out within the borders of Israel. But once David had dispatched the Jebusites, the Canaanite armies, the Canaanite tribes were finished. Now he turns to those outside the borders who have always been agitators all throughout the time of the judges. It was these nations that came in and stirred up trouble and, and oppressed and tyrannized God's people. It was these nations that were attacking. And now, as I said before, David is returning the favor. David is giving them a taste of their own medicine. And so in, from that perspective, this is still defensive war. He's taken this gold, but no telling how much of this gold that he's taken has first been robbed from Israelites. That's, he's just recovering it. David has done this before. He's restored riches that had been taken by the Amalekite raiders. We read that at the beginning of uh, 2 Samuel. We remembered that. So these neighbors around Israel, these are not men of goodwill. These are not men who worship Yahweh. These are not guys who are just really just trying to get along in the world. These are enemy nations who have opportunistically attacked Israel for years and years and years and have enslaved them and have robbed them over and over. So for Israel to have peace, these nations must be subdued. And so if we're keeping our thoughts about David's kingdom parallel with our thoughts about Christ's kingdom, we need to remember that the advance of the kingdom of our Savior is never bloodless. It's never passive. It's never purely political or diplomatic. Jesus' people have to put their lives on the line. They have to present themselves on the field of battle. We put ourselves in the crosshairs of the enemy. The kingdom of heaven is not simply defensive, but offensive against these other powers. But our warfare is still just because, remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers that enslave flesh and blood. And our war is one of rescuing and redeeming and delivering the victims of demonic oppression and demonic idolatry and demonic, demonic enslavement. So... If the kingdom is ever to advance, it will always advance with risk takers like David at the vanguard. David wasn't merely content with what had been inherited from Saul, but he desired to increase the glory of Israel and desired to subdue these enemies all around. Now, there's one happy story in the midst of all this. There's a little note about Toy, T-O-I, which is a fun name to say. Toy, king of Hamath, he doesn't want to be struck down. In verse 9, let me, let me read this again real quick because I was reading through this pretty quickly. Verse 9, when Toy king of Hamath heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram his son to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. Um, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. So when this king hears that David has struck down the army of Hadadezer, who he was at war with, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, he sends his son Joram to ask for terms of peace and to express his delight over David's victory. And so now he submits to David's kingdom and there's peace and safety and salvation. Remember the very same thing again happened during the conquest of Canaan. The Gibeonites were a tribe who laid down their arms and joined Joshua. 
And this is the way that it happens. As the kingdom of Christ advances, some nations and men must be subdued, others submit. Some have to be crushed, others humble themselves. But everybody comes under the two-edged sword. God's sword has two edges, one to kill and one to kill in such a way that you're resurrected to life. Uh, we all have to be dashed against the rock who is Christ. Some to death, some to death and resurrection. We are all dashed against the rock. And this is how uh, this kingdom is slain. They are slain in submission to David and David's God. Well, this last section tells us, it's very brief, it tells us how David ruled and organized his government as a just and fair king over Israel. Let's finish it quickly. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jeho uh, Jehoiada, was over both the Carathites and the Pelathites. Those are two words that mean they were the guards and the runners or the couriers. So we have a company of guards and we have a company of messengers or couriers. And David's sons were chief ministers. So with the covenant God made with David, there's reorganization in the kingdom. Israel is no longer a confederation of independent tribes. There is centralization of authority in the capital of Jerusalem. Later on, we'll get lists of gatekeepers and lists of musicians and singers and mighty men. David is a great organizer, evidently. He's got great administrative skills or he is surrounded by people with great administrative skills. And he's not so absorbed with, with the foreign affairs that he ignores the domestic needs of his kingdom. Everything is being seen to. We're being shown this house building motif again. There's another series of victories and now it's house building time. Let's organize the house and establish it more firmly. Well, well very quickly in conclusion, how does all of this warfare point us to Jesus? I have three brief thoughts, three very quick things. First of all, we see in David's example that as Jesus goes out conquering the nations, they don't come quietly. They come kicking and screaming. The enemies of the kingdom of heaven are not nice. They're not peaceful. They're not going to coexist. No matter what their bumper stickers say, they're not interested in coexisting. That's not their goal. They are driven by the demonic powers over them to tear down everything that is good and right and holy and just. And so we don't win them simply by being nice. Oh, we can be compassionate. We can be good neighbors. We can be servants. But when conflict arises, as it will, you be strong and courageous. Be courageous in all things because God is fighting for you. You're not on your own. See, the nations don't just slide under the kingdom of God. They don't just kind of uh, schmooze over and become the kingdoms of Christ. They are only converted when Jesus, the greater David, imposes his rule over their, uh, over their objections. Uh, he overturns their opposition. He conquers all of his enemies. Secondly, you see when God calls his people to conquer Canaan, and now when David subdues all the enemies of Israel, uh, we have nothing short of total dominion. Total dominion, because this is what Jesus intends to have. When Jesus conquers us and brings us under his rule, Jesus is not happy when there's territory left unconquered. 
He's not happy when there are tribes that haven't been dealt with, tribes of idolaters left undealt with. And, and if he were okay with that, that would be something similar to us saying to him, oh yes, Jesus, I'm mostly with you, but let me just hold on to this little territory over here. Let me hold on to this lust problem. Just leave me with this little circle, this little territory of self-righteousness, this little stronghold of pride, this, this gossip, this bitterness that I'm not going to let go of. Let me have this little part. You can have all the rest. All I want to do is keep on to this little ugly, wretched, black and nasty thing that I have held apart. Let me have this little part. You can have the rest. No, Jesus intends to have the total victory. You see, that's, that's why I'm not bothered when Jesus commands total warfare on the Canaanites, because that shows here's what his position is on idolatry and rebellion. We don't get to hold on to this little dab, this little carryover. It all gets plowed under. It all gets, it all gets cut down. It all gets burned to the earth. I want Jesus to, to run a scorched earth campaign on my life. Right? I, I want Jesus to wage a scorched earth war in my life and have complete and utter take no prisoners victory over me and every part of me. And unconditional surrender is all that he will have. He will not have any part left unconquered. And that's what we see with David. That's what we saw in Canaan. And that's what we continue to see with Jesus' rule. And lastly, just as David's reign symbolized Jesus' dominion over the earth, so do our lives, Christian, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, young men and women, act out in real ways Jesus' rule over the nations, over the areas, the spheres that you have influence in. At work, we are the hands and feet of Jesus, taking dominion over our callings. At, at home, we're taking dominion over these things and our choices and the way we educate our children and the way we build each other up. We are striking down idolatry. We are striking down strike, right? We're striking, we're smiting unbelief. We're smiting rebellion and we're raising the banner of Jesus and we're claiming territory for him. We're sticking flags here and here. And yeah, he's conquered this and he's conquered this and he's conquered this. This belongs to Jesus and that belongs to Jesus. Giving everyone around us a taste of the kingdom, giving everyone, yeah, this is what heaven is like. This is how heaven runs. These are the values. This is what's important in heaven. So it's critical that as we walk and as we work, that we're not giving people a taste of the kingdom of darkness. Yeah, you want to know what hell tastes like? Spend five minutes with me. You'll know what hell tastes like. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're doing. This is what heaven is like. This is a taste of heaven. This is what it looks like when Jesus plants his flag and he has total dominion over a family, over a hobby, over my work. This is what it looks like. That's what we get from David. That's what Jesus expects from us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your servant David as he continues to reflect your dominion as we read this story. Father, may we imitate him as we imitate Christ in planting his flag over every area of our life. Wherever you have put our feet, wherever you have given us work to do with our hands, may we establish Christ's rule and dominion over everything around us. We pray that you would 
that this is your desire. We know this is your desire, but make this more and more full in our day, in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.